Welcome back to Working Overtime, the advicey focus puller to Working's Director of Photography. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. Isaac, what have you got for us this time? Hey, June, it's always lovely to hear your voice. This time, I have been thinking a lot about the five senses and thinking especially about how we often ignore all of them except for sight when we think about our experience of the world and creative work. And maybe we could open up some new creative doors by taking a gander, sight metaphor again, at the other four. Wow, color me fascinated. And in case you're wondering, Isaac, the color of fascination is a sort of dusky rose with hunter orange highlights. Mm. I'm curious, what got you onto this subject? So we recently had an episode where I interviewed a film sound designer named Johnny Byrne, and he walked me through this really intense, detailed process for the film The Zone of Interest. And that just got me thinking a lot about the other senses. And and in a way, this connects to my last book, The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act, because a lot of the acting training in that book is actually about training the senses other than sight. Part of that is just the assumption that, you know, we all use sight all the time. We're thinking about sight. Our language includes a lot of sight metaphors, you know, but actually there are other senses that connect more directly to emotions than sight does. What do you mean? Okay, well, this is a kind of silly one. This this example comes from Acting the First Six Lessons by Richard Boleslavsky, who's the guy who kind of brought Russian acting technique to the United States in the 1920s. And so He tells this story, and it's obviously made up, but he tells this story about this couple that fell in love and courted, and I would assume the implication is fucked, in a (laughs) cucumber patch. Their courtship was in a cucumber patch in their village. And while their eventual child, probably conceived in that cucumber patch, (laughs) did not know this, what the child notices is that every time her parents are fighting, the child like makes a cucumber salad, and then the parents stop fighting. Right. And that is because the smell and taste of the cucumbers reminds them of their love for each other, even though they don't realize it. Now, again, I don't think that example is true. That seems somewhat fanciful to me, although I do love a cucumber salad. But I am betting if you thought about it, there is some smell from your past that has an emotional connection. Am I right? Well, Another thing comes to mind. So it's not exactly about smell, but it is, I think, what you're talking about. So Mm -hmm. let me share a memory which has a very strong association. So this is decades ago. And a friend, somebody I'm still close to, she was just starting out in the world of costuming. She had a relatively junior role in a costume shop. But on this particular production that they were doing, she got the task of making a dress that had such an important role in this production that even a perpetually cash-strapped non-profit theatre gave her a week, maybe even more, just to work on this one garment. And they also didn't skimp on the materials. And so that made it a super fun project for her. And when we would get together, she'd be telling me about, you know, the work that she did on this dress. And so I was going to see the show and I was really looking forward to this dress. Like I knew it was going to be important. And when I went to see it, and remember, this is 35, 40 years ago now, I remembered very little. I don't know what theater company was. I don't know where I saw it. I don't remember what it was. But I remember 
so clearly when this dress appeared on the stage. It was a very brief appearance. Somebody effectively walked across the stage in this garment and that was it. But I remember it with total clarity because it was the colour and the appearance. It was a sort of apricot orange colour and it was almost shiny. And it reminded me of a type of chocolate that we always had at Christmas. It was the orange cream in Quality Street. And the association was caused because the dress had the same colour and shiny quality as the wrapper of that chocolate. And when I saw the dress, I could taste that distinctive orange cream flavour. And now, all these years later, I can still kind of taste it. And it takes me back to my childhood because my mom only bought that particular kind of chocolates at Christmas. So I still remember that dress. I still remember that taste. And it was amazing. Okay, so this is amazing. This is so great. Now, in the acting world, there is a specific thing you would do with everything that you just told me, okay? So mm-hmm. what happened was you were having this experience, you're watching this dress that for some reason they spent a lot of money on and it's only in the play for like five seconds yep. going across the stage. And this memory arises unbidden because it is connected to this sensory thing, the taste of this chocolate, the, the feeling of that wrapper and stuff, right? Yeah. So yep. what you would do is you would write that down Okay, you know, just write down that experience and what triggered it and stuff like that. And then you would work to see if you could trigger that emotion. In this case, it sounds like comfort, you know, Mm -hmm. a specific kind of or Higge, maybe Heimlich (laughs) in German, but that specific kind of comfort of home through imagining the taste of that chocolate. And if you could do that, and if you could train yourself to do that, and you really can be trained to do that, you would get to the point where when you needed to experience that emotion, all you would do was think quality street orange cream. (laughs) And it would happen. It really does work, right? Yeah. And it would just come up and you would be able to use it in the role and then kind of put it away. And you would store it in, it has a bunch of different nicknames in your mind, but my favorite one is the golden casket of feelings. So obviously there's ways that you could use that creatively, not just in acting, right? Like if you want to better convey in your prose that feeling of comfort, you could summon that feeling of comfort for yourself and then write that passage, right? You could do that if you wanted to, but that's a very concrete thing. And in a weird way, I'm talking about something that's a little harder to discuss, which is just that this is like ineffable. It connects to weird parts of ourselves and just getting more in touch with those weird parts of yourself is really useful for being a more creative person. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And I'm really interested in the notion of training yourself to use emotion. And, you know, I don't need it for acting, you know, that example you just described, but Like a lot of creative people, I'm especially aware of the things that I'm less good at, one of which I'm about to enumerate. So when I was doing travel writing, which was started maybe 20 years ago, or I covered a couple of elections outside the US, and my editor would always make the same request. And it was like, he wanted more color. He'd effectively tell me that he wanted to smell and hear and taste the place I was writing about. You know, most people reading Slate haven't gone to Nigeria and they need a bit of help to picture the anarchy of Lagos. And even now, that's something I have to really push myself to include. You know, if God forbid anyone saw any of my first drafts, there would be very little that would stimulate the senses. It's something I've really had to work on and like, it has to be very, you know, I'm looking, what's missing? Ah, yes, senses. And I think I could definitely still do better with that. So I really want to hear more about this, Isaac. 
And I want to talk about this more with you, June. And we will do that after this. Hey, listeners, do you have any tips or questions about the creative process? Get in touch and share your advice and the things you'd like to work on. You can email us at working at slate.com or even better, you can call us and leave a message at 304-933-9675. That's 304-933-WORK or record a voice memo and send it by email to working at slate.com. And we're back. June, uh, one of my favorite movies, I think you know this is one of my favorite movies of all time, it's a shared fave around the Slate offices, is the film Sneakers. Have you seen it? You know, I finally watched it after you interviewed director Phil Alden Robinson back in 2020. Yes, and one of my favorite episodes I've done here I'm Working. So one of the greatest moments in this movie is there's a sequence where Robert Redford gets kidnapped. You know, he's thrown in the back of a van. He's driven somewhere. He doesn't know where he is. He has a conversation with someone. He's put back in the van, and then he's dumped on the street. And he's trying to figure out where he was once he kind of gets back to his high school, right? Because he doesn't know where he was taken. He knows where none of this stuff happened. And there is a blind hacker named Whistler, played by David Strathairn. And he does this brilliant thing with a synthesizer and like a bunch of doodads where he starts playing sounds for Robert Redford as Redford describes the sounds in order to figure out where he was. Ooh. What did it sound like? Lower. Lower. There was a recurring sound. Like seams in the concrete. But further apart. And it culminates in this really funny moment where Robert Redford says, and then there was, I don't know, a cocktail party, you know? And they're like, what do you mean a cocktail party? And of course it turns out that there's a flock of geese or whatever outside this facility he was he was housed in. It's, it's a truly delightful moment. I am having a sensory memory right now and smiling just thinking about it. You know, I have to admit, Isaac, that I talked about that scene with a former Slate colleague who has written a lot about representations of blindness and grew up in a family that had blind people in it. And, you know, because it's from an era before disabled actors were cast in disabled roles, obviously David Strathairn isn't blind in real life. And she said that scene was very well done. I am glad that it got the seal of approval (laughs) because uh, if it turned out to be secretly offensive, that would really break my heart. So the reason I bring this all up is actually that this is actually kind of what a lot of sensory work is about. How do you find your path focusing on one sense? And while I was thinking about this subject, I actually started to remember that you talk all the time about what I might call your Edinburgh constitutionals, (laughs) the lengthy walks you take around town. And I was wondering if maybe you could describe that walk, one of them anyway, to me, but not talk about what you see, but instead maybe what you hear or what you smell. Oh my goodness, what a fun exercise. So yes, pretty much every day I take a walk down the water of Leith. And as I leave the house, there are a lot of people sounds. 
So I live next to a very picturesque bridge that attracts hundreds of tourists every day. So there are always people talking and making the kinds of happy sounds people make when they're posing for photos and want to be captured smiling. There are also car horns because although there is very little traffic around here, it actually isn't a pedestrian area as many of the tourists seem to think and so drivers sometimes have to beep to remind them that they are actually posing in the middle of a street or middle of a road. I hear a lot of different languages all along the walk but especially in this point and for whatever reason Edinburgh attracts a lot of Spaniards and since they often seem to travel in groups and speak a little bit loudly I get to eavesdrop on them. Then I turn along to the water of Leith proper so no more vehicular traffic but there are still a lot of sounds. It doesn't become quiet, it just becomes a different kind of noisy. Again, it's the water of Leith, it's a, it's a waterway, so there's a lot of rushing water, but it's not always the same. You know, there are different sections have different levels of, not exactly rapids, but different volumes of water flow. Before I get too far on the walkway though, I'm assaulted by the smell of the communal trash bins. We don't have individual bins in this part of Edinburgh, they're just kind of put them all together so there's a, a lot of trash uh, and therefore a little bit of a smell even though it's not very hot it could be a lot worse then get further away from the traffic and get more natural sounds there are dogs there are birds and in different kinds of birds in different stretches of the walk there are kind of wrens and little small high-pitched birds in the first stretch further down a lot of crows and other raspier birds the people tend to thin out but there's still, you know, quieter conversations, splash of people walking through puddles, a few bicycle bells as riders try to alert people listening to the working podcast while they're trying to get through. <laughs> I will stop there. That's really, really fascinating, June. And I, I really thank you for, for sharing that. One thing that I find walking around New York City is how each neighborhood actually does have a kind of distinctive sonic palette in yeah. a way that's really wild. You know, to give just one, I live in Borham Hill, which is not really by the water, but is sort of close enough to both the Gowanus Canal and Red Hook that you'll hear gulls sometimes. Mm-hmm. Or like my childhood home was near the National Zoo. And so in the summer <laughs> you would hear baboons yelling. <laughs> And you're like, what is that? That's not a bird. What is that sound? And you'd be like, oh, it's baboons. Or like, I don't know if you've spent any time off hours, like not during working hours in the financial district, but it has this like uncanny quiet to it because of the narrowness of the roads and the shapes of the buildings and no one fucking lives there, really, (laughs) and the cobblestone streets and everything. And it's it's like the quietest place in New York City in a weird way. It's like like some other force has sucked all the sound down. So you just kind of hear this wind, you know, and sound doesn't travel as well. It's a different acoustic environment. But anyway, what I wanted to talk about with what you just did, which I think is really fascinating, is so one thing you could do with that just to dig deeper, for example, is now I asked you to narrate it, which means you have to explain what's going on. But like take away all that explanation Mm. of like then I went to this place and then it's this place and instead just give the senses, the sensory input, right? The sound of this, the sound of that, the sound of that. Then you dig another layer deeper and actually to do this, you probably have to go and spend time in each of those locations, which is to not name the sounds, but to instead describe them. So what is the sound of a bicyclist, right? Yeah. So if you had to describe that without ever using any word (laughs) involved in the word bicycle, so you could use metaphor, 
you know, mm-hmm. so like traffic sounds like running water and vice versa, for example. You could use metaphor, but it's also like, oh, it's a high pitched noise. It's a thin sound. It's a brittle sound. It's a this like if you had to describe it to someone who had no idea what a bicycle was, an alien, for example, yeah. how would you yeah. do it? And you just do more and more stuff like that to get yourself deeper and deeper and deeper into what the sensory experience was like. And I think it, it pays off in some interesting ways in terms of inspiration. Wow. Isaac, I absolutely love this. And if I'm being honest, one of the reasons I like it is that it feels like a fun thing to do outside that doesn't involve getting massively sweaty, which is, you know, basically my dream. But I need you to tell me how I can like take these what sound like very entertaining exercises and use them to make my professional writing better. Right. Well, part of it is, I do think on some level, a divide you and I have sometimes is over the usefulness of things that we're talking about. Right? Yes. yes. And I actually love this about you, mm-hmm. uh, that, that you're often like, well, wait, but how do I just like, how does this make this thing better? Right. And, yeah, and oftentimes yeah. I'm like, actually, it's an experience, man. <laughs> and, you know, all experiences are worthwhile. So it isn't always the case that this is going to directly improve stuff. I will say if you're a writer, particularly as you mentioned in nonfiction writer on assignment somewhere, having a really vivid understanding of what's going on with the senses in every environment you're in is really useful. You're not going to use all of those details in talking about the hotel room you're in, right? But you might be like, oh, this hotel room smells a little weird. You know, there's like a jasmine air freshener or something, right? (laughs) So, okay, that's interesting. I can say the jasmine scented hotel room, you know, and you might not have noticed that before because what you're really doing is training yourself to notice these things. I also think like, look, our brain is where the creativity is happening, right? Supposedly, probably, hopefully that's where the creativity is happening. But a weird thing about the brain is that it is actually incapable of perception. The brain doesn't perceive anything. It is wholly reliant on sensory organs to experience the world. Those sensory organs are sending all that data to the brain and the brain is interpreting it and telling you it smells like Jasmine or whatever. Right. And so the better you train the connections between the brain and those organs, the more vivid your experience of the world is going to be, the more Mm -hmm. vivid your experience of the world is going to be, the more material your mind then has to chew on to create with. And, you know, like, not to be too woo-woo or anything, but I think the other part of it is that it is kind of mindfulness training as well that helps you feel more peaceful and connected with the world around you. And I think that's always useful. I will also say there's a lot of different exercises you can do around this stuff. Like I just made up that thing about, oh, what would you do with those senses on your sensory walk? Like if you sit there and think about it, ideas will come to you. If you're looking for sound exercises, there's a great guy by the name of Murray Schaefer who's written a lot about exercises you can do to understand the sound of your world. You know, another thing you could do, there's an old acting exercise one is pick up an object like in method acting books it's always books of matches because everyone was chain smoking right <laughs> don't do that pick up a penny pick up a just some inert object not your phone right and set a timer for 10 minutes or whatever and spend that entire time getting as much sensory information out of that thing as possible what does a penny smell like? What does it taste like? What? Are, how many ridges? Can you count how many ridges it has on that edge? How is this different from other pennies? Is part of it worn down? Can you see the zinc in this one corner or whatever? Uh-huh. Uh, and get so in-depth that after that timer is off, you could then close your eyes and describe that penny super vividly to someone who had not seen or experiencing it. You know, you can take a cracker. This is going to sound stupid, but you could take a saltine. You could chew it for so long that the carbohydrates break down and it goes from tasting salty to sweet. You know, you can do all sorts of of, of different things. You are putting me off crackers, Isaac. I totally get where <laughs> you're going, but I don't want to be that deep on the cracker. 
You don't want to be that deep on the cracker? That's fine. You know what you could do instead? You could take a really high-end piece of chocolate, put it in your mouth for like five minutes and figure out how the taste changes over that time. Would that be better? I'm doing it right now. Let's take a break while June has some chocolate. We'll be back in less than five minutes, I promise, after this. Listeners, I just want to remind you that if you are enjoying Working Overtime, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, we would love you to rate or review the show. It truly does help listeners to find us. And if Overcast is your app of choice, as it is for me, please hit the star to recommend the episode to others. So, uh, June, before we wrap up today, I also wanted to just talk about this with our own artistic practice, because we're both mostly nonfiction writers and we're both kind of historians at this point. Although anytime I say that at a cocktail party and someone who has a Ph.D. in history hears me (laughs) say it, they get mad at me. But one of the things we're trying to do is in narrative form, bring real past events to life. And one of the ways you do that is through the senses. And Mm. I'm just wondering, particularly given what your forthcoming book is about, how you went about doing that. This was a real challenge for me when I was writing A Place of Our Own, Six Spaces That Shaped Queer Women's Culture, because it's about places, you know? The chapter about the lesbian bar had to have a different vibe from the feminist bookstore and lesbian land, the separatist communities that were created, usually in pretty remote rural areas, had to seem different from, you know, an urban backyard. So... I had to be conscious of that. At the same time, it's a survey, you know, six archetypal locations and several specific locations in each chapter. So it didn't feel appropriate to spend too much time describing the intimate details of specific places I'd visited or I was talking about. And in fact, one commonality is that decades ago, at least, when these places were often trying to kind of repel unwanted attention from Uh people who they didn't want to come by, they weren't documented. So there are very few photos or even descriptions of many of these places. So I was trying to evoke emotions, you know, for bars that might be danger, anticipation, disappointment, and definitely lust. For the softball field, it might be pride in physical prowess, bonding with teammates, exhaustion, that kind of loggy feeling you get after you've been running around in the sun. So yeah, it was more about trying to evoke a feeling and emotion rather than providing description. And I guess I came up with those emotions Mm. by trying to remember you know, what it was like for me to be in those spaces at different times in my life. So I'm suddenly realizing that I've done some of the exercises that you're talking about. You say a a bar and I just think the stickiness of the floor, right? Yes, absolutely. You know, if it's it's not a nice bar, it's like, oh God, that, that particular feeling of the stickiness of the floor, right? You don't need to know that that what bar you're in if you're just like, oh, it had a sticky floor, you know, or that smell, the old beer smell of a a bar, you know, that's really, really fascinating. I definitely found myself thinking about this a lot with The Method, and I'm thinking about this a lot with my new book, The Perfect Moment, which is about the culture wars of the 80s and 90s in in the art world. And I'm not going to ask someone who worked at the National Endowment for the Arts, what did Chairman Frommeyer smell like? Do you know what I mean? Like, that's, 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 not a, that's not a great question, you know? But you do want to get them into the details. What did your office look like? Was it a big office? Was it a small office? You know, had it newly been painted? I mean, sometimes those questions are actually really useful because it can just get the conversation into an interesting place. And suddenly they'll be like, oh, yeah, it was newly painted because the person before me had been fired. 
And uh, after they were fired, the office was empty for a little while. And so they needed to be repainted. Oh, interesting. Why were they fired? So that's a fake example. I'm making that up. Yes, but yes, Those yes, kinds yes. of things happen. Or, you know, was the room hot or cold? Yeah. Yeah. You know, do you remember if it was a really important emotional moment? Usually people will really remember the sensory details because part of what's going on is your brain is kind of opening up and like all these sensations are flooding in. Like if you've ever been into a car crash, you probably remember the minute around that car crash really, really vividly, like what it sounded like, everything, you know, or to give another example, you know, when my dad was in the hospital, he's still with us, you know, he had a medical emergency and he was in the hospital. And I just remember so well the smell of disinfectant in his room. Yeah. I remember the beep of the equipment. I remember that stuff as well as I remember, you know, the look on his face when he woke up or, you know, whatever it was. It's really wild how much your brain retains of those moments. Yeah, I had a real epiphany on this topic when I was doing interviews for the book, at least in those areas when there was already a lot of information out there and I kind of already knew the facts because I'd read them in books or whatever. And so it was still important to talk about facts. You do want to, you know, get confirmation about those things from the people who were there. But the thing that really made the difference was them telling me how it felt to be in those places. And sometimes they don't know they're doing that, you know. It's very rare that somebody will actually say, oh, I just remember. It's not that. But you can just kind of tell their voices change when they're getting to something that really affected them emotionally. And that's why, of course, it's important to listen back to interviews rather than just work off a transcript. But, you know, you do get a sense of what was important in an emotional way. And that's really useful. You know, that's where you get Mm -hmm. the good stuff, you know. But we should not neglect the visual even if we don't really need to do as much training or thinking about that, right? Well, no, of course not. I should also say, you know, the first half of my book is about visual art. So if we don't include the visual, I'm really fucked. You know, (laughs) Um, there are exercises to train sight. You know, sight is a very, very important sense. What I find is it's one of those limits are the sources of creativity thing, you know? If you just say, oh, well, sight is off the table, it leads you to some interesting places. And then you can use what you learned from those places, bring it back to thinking about the visual, and it will make the visual more interesting, too. Yes. Wow. Well, I need to go off and do some exercises. We're going to call an end to this particular episode. Call it, friendo. (laughs) But let me leave you, listeners, with one last piece of advice. I think you should subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have ideas for things we could do better or questions you'd like us to answer, we really, truly want to hear from you. You can send us an email at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. Working Overtime is produced by Kevin Bendis. Our series producer is Cameron Drews. And I got to say, both these guys, they look, they smell, they sound, they feel great. I am not a cannibal. I cannot attest to how they taste, but they got four out of five senses down. Thank you so much for listening. We'll have a new episode of Working on Sunday, and we'll have another episode of Working Overtime in two weeks. Until then, get back to work. 